Good evening. You are listening to the Yenar podcast. Today is Good Friday, Friday the 7th of April. Um, and actually, I said good evening, but this is actually good afternoon for us because uh, <laughs> we're, we're recording on the afternoon of Good Friday. My uh, my belly is full of um, hot cross buns that I had for breakfast this morning. Did either of you have some hot cross buns? Oh, and of course, sorry. Joining me today <laughs> is uh, Roman. Hi, hi. And Mark. Hey, um, Good Friday. Why? Why is it Good Friday? I mean, Jesus died. Is that is that not bad? Well, I've, I mean, I've always been confused by that, but. It's good because I get to eat hot cross buns. <laughs> I, I guess it's good because this is the beginning of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. <laughs> what sins have you committed recently, Mark? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, many, many maybe, sins. Maybe, maybe better to list the ones he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, is exercise to- a sin? Because I've not exercised recently. <laughs> but uh, back to your question, Craig. Um, as a can, well, I should say maybe more as a Newfoundlander, um, hot cross buns weren't quite the thing. Um, I was really more into the Cadbury cream eggs, and I have really been noticing their absence this holiday season. We had them earlier, like in maybe January, February, and then they kind of disappeared. Well, can, you, can you not buy them? Not in Wellington. Ah, <laughs> I, I was okay. under the impression that there was a shortage. Right. Okay. I'm skeptical about Cadbury's cream eggs. I'm not even sure whether I like them or not. They're a weird confectionery. They're very, 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 me is what that is. Very, very <laughs> sweet. They're incredibly sweet. I'm sure that I could go very wild on them. <laughs> so apparently, it's Good Friday because Jesus was good because he died for our sins. It was a good act, and not not because everybody's celebrating that he died. I mean, maybe then you know Sunday would be disappointing because he came back again. It's like ah, <laughs> damn it, <laughs> we've got him again. He's back to tell us off for all our sins. Did he really? Did he really, he really come die back? and come back? No, no. I mean, he, it, it seems like from what I can tell of, you know, the people that know more about this than me, which is pretty much everybody. But the experts seem to think that Jesus was probably a historical figure, although there are some outliers. But, yeah, the, the miracle thing, obviously, is uh, it doesn't seem to be true, does it? I mean, when I was going to church as a child, it always used to make me wonder, well, they said Jesus came back, but they were very skinny on any details of what happens after he came back. I mean, did he just carry on his life or and uh, carry on his carpentry business? And no, no, he, he, or- he bummed around for a few days. He went to Doubting Thomas and showed the wound in his side and showed that he'd been resurrected. And then he ascended to heaven. So he, he just kind of like plodded around for a while and then basically floated up into the clouds. <laughs> That, that was what Jesus did afterwards. He, he stood on a special spot and this little beam of light up into the clouds. Oh, now now we can mix Jesus and UFOs. I'm liking this. This should be our new <laughs> skeptics conspiracy. Jesus was an alien. That's got to have been done already. That that can't be done. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Yes. So there's, in fact, I remember back when I was young, you used to hear all these news stories about all these wild theories that were used to try and explain um, the existence of Jesus and, and he might want to be an alien or whatever, and to try and rationally explain the supposed miraculous um, events. <laughs> I, I never get that. I know, like the one I remember reading years ago was about the parting of the Red Sea. And there were a couple of Israeli researchers that had looked at the Red Sea and had looked at what happens if it's a, 
certain conditions with a high pressure and a wind blowing from this direction. And at this point where actually it, it's quite shallow, maybe a high wind could have blown it so that some of the sand appeared and people could have walked across. And it's like, we're talking about a God that can do anything. Why do you need to justify via natural mechanisms why any of this happens? This is an all-powerful God. If he wants to split 50-foot-high water into amazing waves on both sides, he can do that. He doesn't need a natural mechanism for it. I can tell you're still a believer, Mac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and th this is i mean like for all the arguments that christians come out with uh you know the miracles and all this kind of thing i think the one strongest argument they've got is god can do anything we do not need to explain why in our belief system god can do whatever the hell he likes god can bury dinosaur bones and make the earth look old when it's actually young that that's all they need they don't need any of this stuff about intelligent design and you know all the other nonsense they come out with an all-powerful god can do whatever the hell he likes and if you're going to argue that your god is ineffable and confusing and the decisions he makes are beyond our understanding then there's no point even trying to figure out why he does it you just say my god does this stop questioning case closed is is, is that one of your sermons for the eastern lightning chat <laughs> <laughs> it might be oh speaking of which i've got an in-person meeting coming up soon maybe this weekend in wellington or they're trying to organize one for next weekend in Porra. it's going to be really weird meeting people in person with this cult because we're mm. all going to be new i mean they've only been trying to recruit people really recently. So it's going to be a bunch of people that have just joined a new cult sitting in a room together. The awkwardness level is going to be through the roof, I think. Do you need a safe <laughs> word in which you can text us to let us know that you're in trouble and they're trying to convert you or they're trying to have an intervention? I think so. So years ago, I watched a documentary about BDSM and their safe word in that one was aubergine. So Oh, actually, that's got quite a sexual connotation now, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that works really well. But if I send you the aubergine emoji, I mean, the fact that I never use emojis will be telling in and of itself. But yeah, it, it'll let you know to come and rescue me. I'll, I'll have to pre-warn my husband that, like, look, this is not sexual. This is a <laughs> time. Uh, anyway, shall we, uh, shall we move on? Um, mm. So... Mark, yes. you were telling me that you were going down a rabbit hole. Um, yeah, well, no, before that, actually, I've, I've got a mini rant to do and, and I have an admission to make. So the other day, my wife was trying to show me something on her mobile phone and she shoved it in my face and it was all blurry. And I was like, it's too close. Move it away. And then suddenly it clicked. Is that because she shoved it too close to my face or is it that I'm going blind? Um, and I did some testing uh, the next like five minutes of moving the phone around and having a look. My eyesight's not what it used to be. And I'm concerned about this, concerned enough that even though I hate going to doctors and all that kind of thing, I'm a standard white middle-aged man. I booked myself into Specsavers the other day and I went and had a test done, the first one in probably 35 years. Um, and I was worried that, you know, this is just old age, eyes going wrong, but it turns out that I am long-sighted in one eye and short-sighted in the other. I have no idea how this has happened, um, but I'm a mixture of both. And I guess on average, we could say my eyesight is perfect, but each eye is wrong in a different way. The optometrist was great. They really looked after me. And then, you know, once they'd done the testing, obviously they recommended glasses because they always do, even though my eyesight's not that bad. 
And then came the kicker because the glasses were fairly cheap, but suddenly there is a hundred dollars extra I could spend per pair of glasses to get a blue light filter on them. (laughs) And at this point, I stared at the optometrist and I was like, what? And she said, a blue light filter, it really helps you. And I said, no, it doesn't. I've read the summaries of the research. I've read what's being said in the EU about this. I know like all the industry organizations that are involved in this say that there is not a problem with blue light. It's not causing us health issues. It's not affecting our circadian rhythm. So as far as I can tell, I think you're trying to sell me this blue light filter as just a way of making money. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, you're right. The research does show that it really doesn't do anything. Wow, she admitted that. But at which point she said, but for $100, you could also just pay for our anti-glare filter instead. (laughs) I was like, okay, that's impressive. That was an immediate switch from one to the other. I said, look, I'm not going to buy glasses now. I'm going to hold off and I'm going to go back to my office and I'm going to look up the anti-glare filter and see if it's any good because it just felt like I was being one con was being replaced with another one. And it was just like a, a bait and switch from con to another con. And sure enough, because I probably only need to wear them like in the afternoon in front of my screen. Um, it turns out that the anti-glare filter is useful for when you're driving with glasses in cars, apparently, and things like that. But she tried explaining that my screen was bright enough that this would cause glare. <sighs> Everything I no. found online was like, no, no, this it's just more marketing fluff. So I'm going to go out this weekend with my kids and try and find a pair of glasses that works with my oversized nose and doesn't make it look like I'm wearing one of those comedy glasses, nose, moustache combos, because most glasses do that to me. But, but, uh, maybe, but I am but maybe, not. Sorry. I was about to say, but maybe you need that for the Eastern Lightning meeting so you can hydrate. <laughs> <laughs> I I will look so much like I'm in disguise. They'll just accept that I'm somebody else underneath all of that. But yeah, so I'm not going to get the anti-glare filter. I'm not going to get the blue light filter. I'm going for the bog standard cheapest glasses I can get. And they are not making that extra money out of me. So a couple of points. It's very, uh, I mean, if you want to save some money on glasses, now that you've got your prescription, you can always order some online from a supplier overseas. And they they are a lot cheaper if you want to, so much not cheaper. be able to try them on first. Your point about um, this is the first time you've gone in 35 years. I think that's, <laughs> uh, that's probably not a very good thing because that's kind of that's, that's, that's unusual behavior, as, Mark. <laughs> as you get old, you can get various de- degenerations in your eyes. So you should really be getting them checked much more frequently than. Uh, and when I get old, I will start going regularly. But while I'm still only in my 40s, I think I'm fine. His kids keep mm. him young there, Craig. <laughs> yeah, that's what they do. They don't tie me out. They keep me young. Um, so, yes, they did all the testing. Actually, they did a whole bunch of testing of like scanning the back of my eyeball and stuff like that. And they showed me it's looking good. No um, glaucoma, no swelling of the little hyperfine area, whatever it's called in the middle of the optic nerve. Um, so they they did look at my eye health and it was all fine. Um, and yes, places? apparently because... Because these issues don't cause pain, often you won't notice them or you'll just try to ignore the fact your eyesight is deteriorating. And I've certainly got friends who you see them on their phones as their eyesight goes worse, where the font size on their phone keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger to compensate. But yet these friends will not admit that they've got bad eyesight. They'd rather just keep cranking up the font size and pretending it's not (laughs) happening. But for me, it was like the first sign that maybe something's going a little bit blurry. I was straight to the optometrist. And yeah, so I, I, the idea of ordering online, I like, 
once I figured out what glasses don't work really badly with my nose, when I figured that out and I know a style that works, then possibly I'll, uh, I'll buy from AliExpress. I'll start at $5 and work my way up from there. Okay. Okay. I hadn't even thought about going to AliExpress. Yeah. yeah. I was anyway, thinking like yeah. contacts.co.nz. <laughs> no, I'm going to start really cheap and see what I get. Oh, well, that'd be a great experiment. Do you All need right. Glasses? Do you well, need an assembly kit of glasses and uh, screws. And- the, the thing is, will will they look any good? That's the thing. Will you look fashionable in them? If I'm at my oh, desk and just wearing them there, yeah, yeah. I mean, fashionable in me that that doesn't really mix. So I'm I'm not overly worried. I just don't want to look like an idiot. I don't want to look like you know, <laughs> like glasses really aren't for me. I want a pair that actually suit my face, which is going to be a hard task. But I figure if I take my entire family out, the point at which I put on a pair of glasses and none of them ridicule me, I know I found the right pair of glasses. But but why glasses and not contacts, Mark? Because it's occasional use in front of a screen and contacts are all day for everything. So contacts are a hassle. Glasses I only need occasionally. Yeah, well, I would uh, second that. I wore contacts for many years and they're such a hassle. They're not. So, they're amazing. I wear, my, I well, wear my contacts more than I wear my glasses. Okay, so maybe the technology has improved since I last wore them. I, I, have, have, a, I have the torque probably, lenses have astigmatism. Okay. Yeah, so I, yeah, I have astigmatism in my left eye. But my eyesight is is all right. I mean, it you know, it, things only get blurry really close to my face, closer than they or further away than it used to. So it has degenerated a little bit. But my eyesight is, I think, distance wise is better than 2020. So I did a test the other day just in the office informally and I can read kind of up to about, was it 30 feet for the 20, whatever. So that that's absolutely fine. My distance ability to read is good. And I suppose if I close one eye, my close-up ability to read is probably all right as well. So it's not awful. I don't need to have my eyesight corrected all the time. It's just if my eyes start getting a little bit tired, apparently I could do with glasses to help out. Well, you said you've got short-sightedness in one eye and long-sightedness in the other. So maybe you can just do an alternating wink to... Yeah, it's hard to hold. So maybe I just need to get like a pirate eye patch and just switch which eye it's on. (laughs) And then you need to get a matching parrot. I don't think your daughters would let you have an eye patch and not get them a pet bird. Um, uh, When you said a matching pair, like a matching pair of eye patches, surely I can't see at all. I said parrot. Okay. (laughs) I don't think like now I have two cats in the home. I don't think a parrot's going to mix well with a couple of cats, is it? It might. Maybe that parrot's a bit of a, like one of those African gray parrots who can get really, really fighty and just cheat, teach the cats who's boss. All that's tempting. I mean, I don't like cats. I don't like any pets. But to see like something put my cats in their place would be really nice. I'm pretty sure the last time we were on a Zoom, I saw you kiss your cat. So I mean, don't tell me you don't love your pets. All right. So liar, liar, pants on fire, caught on the podcast. My eldest daughter keeps asking me to kiss the cat. And I say, I will not kiss the cat on demand. And she said, okay, as a compromise, how about you kiss the cat every night before it goes to bed? And I agreed to that. And it turns out she's got a really good memory and she's following through. Every night I get a cat shoved in my face. So I have to kiss it goodnight. And I'm keeping up my side of the bargain. Why does she want you to kiss the cat? Because she knows it annoys me. That's all it is. She's a teenager, right? That, that's what's going on. Hey. <laughs> and yet you indulge it because you love your child and you love your cat. Oh, uh, 
This cat that you you specifically bought because it had a funny face. Yeah, I, I hate all pets, but it's a very cute cat. All right. I, I will admit to that publicly. <laughs> anyway, right, moving on. Moving on. We've talked enough about enough about you. Let's talk about me. <laughs> uh, so uh, I had a couple of topics in the newsletter uh, last week. Um, one of them was about EV fires. So, Roman, because you're such a troll, you and knowing that I drive an EV, you, <laughs> you said I should write about it because there had been another EV fire, and this one was a bit of a strange one. So there was a Tesla that caught fire and was uh, driving across the Auckland Harbour Bridge while it was on fire, and uh, eventually the person who was driving it, who according to various articles online was uh, an intoxicated woman, um, so she shouldn't have been driving the car in the first place. But no, she the, should have done. It's a Tesla. It drives itself. She can be drunk. It's fine. Well, I'm doubtful <laughs> about that. It's actually a passenger. <laughs> anyway, so apparently this wasn't your bog standard EV fire where, uh, as, as internet uh, law would have it, uh, they all catch fire, and uh, it's it's the battery that catches fire, and they're very hard to put out, and so on. Apparently, this fire, it seemed, started in a wheel, and so the car was observed to be driving across um, from the Victoria Park Tunnel, uh, and then across the Harbour Bridge while a while its front wheel, one of its front wheels was on fire. That um, would have looked badass, right? Yeah. Going through a tunnel with your wheel, flames coming off it. That would have been awesome. It would, it would have been pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, eventually the, the woman stopped on the Harbour Bridge and blocked all the traffic and um, and the car was in a pretty bad way. So it was a, a Model X, uh, which is a particularly expensive version of the, the Tesla. And I imagine that... She's going to have a pretty interesting conversation with her insurance company about claiming on that. I mean, the car is a complete write-off. It's uh, it's the the picture that I put in the newsletter shows that it's sort of um, a smouldering wreck. It's completely burnt out, but ma- but mainly at the front, which is obviously where the fire started. But yeah, she's going to have an interesting conversation with her insurance company about uh, whether they. Whether they can deny the claim because she's uh, she was intoxicated when she's driving a car. So, as part of writing that article, I did a little bit of research into how often EVs actually catch fire. And interestingly, there was a study done uh, in the US where an insurance company looked at the um, Transportation Safety Bureau statistics and looked at the different types of cars and how often they catch fire. And so they looked at um, per 100,000 sales of cars, only 25 out of that 100,000 uh, that were EVs caught fire. So that's a pretty pretty small number. So from that, I would conclude that EV fires are very, uh, very rare. But the most amazing statistic that came out of that, which is a statistic that I can hardly believe, is that hybrid cars, the type that you drive, Mark. Yeah. Per hundred thousand <laughs> 100, sales, apparently three thousand four hundred and seventy-four of them catch fire. So you've got a three and a half percent chance of your hybrid catching fire. 
Isn't I, it's recently been recommended to me that I should upgrade my insurance to fully comprehensive from just third person. Um, if the number's that high, I, I'm getting the feeling that maybe I should phone up my insurance company this afternoon. Do you think they're open on Good Friday? Wow. Uh, that's, that's, that's just a big number. number. Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought, well, this is this is on a an insurance company website. Maybe they've got some done some dodgy study or something, but from as far as I can tell, they're actually pulling from the National Standard uh, Transportation Safety Bureau, the US uh, bureau that collects that data, the statistics, and just collating them and, and reporting them back. So yeah, I so this I think how... was the same same study that Robin talked to us about a few months ago, where she looked it up and found that hybrids were much more likely. They're the, they're right. the danger point. Mm. Yeah, but I like I like my hybrid. It, it drives nicely and it's cheap and it goes a long way because I put petrol in it. Maybe, maybe you should invest in a uh, one of those fireproof asbestos suits for when you're driving, right? <laughs> that might be nice. But the very least, a fire extinguisher. I'm really looking to the point where I can drive through a tunnel with my car on fire, looking badass. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. <laughs> but the thing is, yeah. you need someone to witness it, so you need like video. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, I should. You gotta have probably to put along inside your car while you do it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to buy some selfie sticks and glue them to my car with um, GoPro cameras attached, and get maybe six different angles just to make sure I catch it properly. From AliExpress, is that where you're gonna buy your AliExpress? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they do a very good uh, GoPro ripoff. I'm sure they do a very bad GoPro ripoff that might not even have camera parts inside it. Um, Possibly, but yeah, sorry. okay. So yeah, so all right. I I will upgrade my insurance because this sounds a little bit scary. As long you know, if I'm not inside it, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I don't put it in a garage. So if it burns down in my driveway, it I'll get the marshmallows out. It'll be interesting. <laughs> yes. Okay. Very good. Uh, so I also wrote about the um, the skeptics hundred thousand dollar challenge um, that we've we've talked about a few times in the past, but it is now live and it went live on the first of April, and we sent out communications to the three prominent people in New Zealand that we consider were worthy of a challenge. And uh, so those three people were Calvin Cruikshank, who is um, an alleged psychic who appeared on the Sensing Murder shows that I looked it up recently. It ran for six seasons, 42 episodes, and zero cases solved. It died <laughs> for a while, and then it came back for another season, and that extra season was just so disappointing. that they, In fact, maybe even two extra seasons. The fact that they resurrected it from the dead was like, ah, just let it lie. I mean, it, it did nothing positive. All it's doing is promoting shysters, people who were ripping people off. It's yeah. not okay to make this show. And Kelvin is still uh, going around the country doing his uh, shows, uh, I think uh, recently he did sort of four in a row at, at various town halls and, and little places dotted around New Zealand. Yeah, so 1st I, of April, 1st of April, the day we challenged him, he was in Tauranga doing a show, $65 a ticket. Mm. <sighs> yes, if only we were less ethically uh, aligned. <laughs> Could make a lot of money. Um, so I sent a message via his Facebook page. That was the only way I was able to get in touch with him. 
talked to his administrative assistant, Jim, and passed on the challenge, and I have not heard anything uh, back um, apart from, from the initial communication with her. Uh, so I think uh, that means that Calvin is uh, telling us to, no, nope, not interested, doesn't want to be able to prove his abilities. And I'll go out on a limb here and I'll say that's because he doesn't have any. Well, he, well we know he did the same to Stuart Lansborough, right? <laughs> yes, as we as we, as we we related, what, a couple of podcasts ago when we interviewed Stuart and, uh, and yeah, uh, he... Stuart challenged him and uh, he was not interested. There's a really worthwhile video from Sensing Murder that's worth watching on YouTube. It's about five minutes and it's interviewing three of the main psychics on it. So Sue Nicholson, Kelvin Cruikshank and Deb Weber and asking them all about what their response is to the skeptics. Um, and you can see them getting like a little bit angry about it. But the big thing that they say is we have nothing to prove to the skeptics. Um, you know, we we believe that it works. They believe that it doesn't. That's fine. But we don't feel we need to prove anything to them because we know that it works. And all our followers and fans know that it works. And why would they need proper rigorous testing when they just feel it in their bones that they're really talking to the spirits? And it's kind of sickening to watch. I I've used it on the radio a couple of times, little audio snippets from it, because for any skeptic that listens to their response to us, it's obvious that they don't understand the first thing about science and testing and fallibility and all these things that, you know, we spend so much time reading about and understanding to know how easy it is to get something wrong. For me personally, I really don't care what anybody thinks. It's what I think and, and what I've seen in my life with my career and how much difference uh, can be made to families in so much pain uh, is the ultimate goal. So people can throw sticks and stones, mate, but the reality for me is um, if you're happy doing that, that's fine, but I don't need to listen to you because I don't believe that what I'm doing is wrong. Hmm. Yep, indeed. So the um, the second person we challenged was Ken Ring. Ken has been making um, claims that he can do long-range weather prediction, so you can get a prediction from him for your wedding day or something like that. So months or weeks in advance. And he um, sells he also, an almanac, right? Yes. So that gives you a whole year of weather. Um, and apparently the farmers are very, very happy with that. And um, not just so here, we, Ireland. He's big in Ireland. Mm. For some reason, the Irish farmers really love his almanac. Indeed. Yep. At New Zealand, Australia and Ireland, um, they're all big purchases of his almanac. Um, so... I sent the uh, contact through his website, uh, inviting him to do the challenge, and we have had some um, exchanges of emails. And uh, <laughs> he he does not feel that uh, that we would be fair in our judgment of his abilities. Uh, he <sighs> thinks that uh, because he has to put wide time spans on his prediction ranges <laughs> that uh -huh. uh, we wouldn't accept that. And with a, with good reason, because when you look at his wide prediction, they, they are so wide that um, it basically lets anything in. Yeah. Can we can we talk now about, you know, the history of the skeptics and Ken Ring, maybe going all the way to the back when Ken Ring used to be a member of the Skeptic Society? Because yeah, well, this to me is fascinating. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it would be really interesting to know what happened that caused him to actually leave. Uh, we know that he did a, a presentation at a conference once called, what was it? 
reading something about palmistry being a pun on cat paws and and reading the future with with the marks that cats left with their paws, perhaps. Yeah, so he made a, a book that was a parody called Paw Mystery. It was a it was a how to guide on how to read your cat's paws. I'd love to get a copy because it sounds like it's kind of funny. So at the time he was poking fun. But yeah, over time, since he used to be a member of the Skeptics, it seems like, and I think this is, I've written about this a while ago, it's an issue with a subset of Skeptics that they have a confidence that they know things because they've personally thought about it. And I think sometimes that kind of arrogance, that overconfidence can lead people to think that, well, whatever they think must therefore be correct. Um, and I, th- I think he just ran away with that, you know, ended up deciding that the moon is a useful predictor for both weather events and earthquakes. And you read his Facebook page. It, it just goes from there to climate change is not real. There are directed energy weapons making whales beach themselves. And it, it just gets really weird. And why isn't climate change Something something to do with pigsties and weather over pigsties. And the more you read, the more it's like Ken has just gone off on a real tangent. But obviously, the people that follow him, the people that pay him money, they love this. They they love the fact that he's challenging the status quo, that he's being like an independent thinker. So when I when I went to put together the um the letter to him, I went and visited his Facebook page and and just sort of had a read of one of his random posts and the one amusing thing that he came out with was some rant about how climate change isn't real. And his reasoning for that is he says that CO2 itself as a molecule can't store um, heat because if it did, then if you put a Coke can in your pocket, your ear leg would uh, heat up from all the (laughs) CO2 that's encapsulated in the can of Coke. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, see, it's that arrogance, that arrogance that he thinks that he's thought it through, you know, without obviously ever done a science degree um, and without understanding the very basics of physics, he's had a think. And at the end of this thing, which probably happened on the loo, he's figured this out. And, and he probably thinks he's pretty clever for having figured this out. Yeah. He's a, and he's a prolific writer. It, it just these sort of people seem to be don't they? They just, they get this weird idea and then it all tumbles out of their brain. Yeah. Into, yeah. Into a lot of newsletter. content. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Oh no, no. You're, you're forcing us to have some introspection here. That's, that's too scary. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> no. Right. And so the third person we challenged was uh, Kirsten Taylor, who is the CEO of the Sleep Drops company, who makes special potions um, with some, herbs in them in homeopathic quantities and you put a few drops under your tongue um, and that's meant to make you sleep but better over a period of weeks and months um, so yeah so we I wrote to her managed to get the message through to the support people at her company uh, via their, their web page contact form uh, and had a brief discussion with them and they came up with a few excuses like they're doing clinical trials, but they won't be um, sharing them with an unrelated party. Uh, so it seems to me like it's complete bullshit. If you go to the clinical trials page on their website, all it is is links off to other 
scientific studies, perhaps in uh, scare quotes, um, that tout the uh, advantages of some of the ingredients that are used in their sleep drops, sleep drops product. So who who knows as to whether or not the actual product itself works. They are kind of pretending that they've done these clinical trials, but my suspicion is that they haven't. Um, so this was they're, really they're, disappointing, I think. The, the fact that, you know, when they emailed you back first, they said, we don't need to be tested by the skeptics because we're doing the, our own clinical trials. And then you asked for the details and they came back and said, no, we obviously can't give you the details of our protocol because it's proprietary information that, you know, is we need to keep it um, to ourselves because it's worth something. And it's like, no, no, that's the opposite of how science works. When you're doing yeah. science, you need to be transparent and open about your testing protocol. You can't tell people we've tested our product and it works, but you just need to trust us. We can't show you any of the details of how we tested it. Totally the wrong way around. And this yeah. is going to be so interesting when this therapeutic product bill comes out, because they are going to definitely fall under that purview. Mm. Yes. So how yeah. much of a secret is it going to be? And, how, you know, you can't tell the government, no, I'm not going to give you, you know, <laughs> evidence that we've done these tests. Yeah. And in my experience, I mean, any products that have done clinical trials and have had good results generally tend to trumpet that and say, hey, well, here's the clinical trial that we did. We got these results and therefore you should buy our product because the product works. Like even MLMs, you know, that have that whose products have dem demonstrably like ruined people's hair and people's skin. Even they say, yes, we have we've done these clinical tests, even though they've done their own clinical trials or done their own you know, consumer mm. trials, they've still done them. They will still trumpet them if they work. And mm. the worst the worst part of that, I think, is when they actually find a university that's willing to take money in order to run some ridiculously badly designed trial. And we're not immune from this. There are, you know, I read studies from universities in New Zealand where they've been paid by companies to do testing. And suddenly this miracle berry is really good for athletes and <laughs> therefore old people need to buy it. And it's so gutting to read that our own academic institutions are happy to be a part of this sham, making bullshit products look like they work. It's it. I I always disappointed and always frustrated at the lack of knowing what we can do about it. Mm. Yep, very frustrating. So anyway, so we've got three people we've challenged. All three seem to be very reticent. I wonder why that is. Maybe the things they think they can do, they can't actually prove. <laughs> it seems likely. And just just to be transparent here, I can we can we talk about the fact that the sleep drops were the one we did prevaricate over more than any other that, you know, because it's not just homeopathy and flower essence. There are actual herbs in there at some kind of quantity. We had to do a lot of reading and, and looking up to see what are these quantities and is there any chance that it actually does work? Because we, we need to make sure we're not going to lose $100,000. That would be kind of disappointing. Hmm. Maybe the grimmer thought is that, hey, these three people have made enough money uh, manipulating and misrepresenting themselves that they don't need our $100,000. And I think that's a much scarier <laughs> thought. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, the, the risk for them of failing our test is commercially much greater than the, the gain that they would get from winning the test. And that's a really good point. Each of them will be much richer than our entire society is. Um, they're sitting on a larger pile of cash than we are by a long way. Mm. Uh, so the the final part to this is that we put out the press release uh, and 
uh, TVNZ's breakfast program um, emailed me and they were interested in uh, getting me on the program to talk about this. And we sort of uh, went a little bit down that path. Uh, but then they said that their legal department needed to get in touch with all of those three people in order to give them the right of reply. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's where it stands at the moment. So I'm suspecting that maybe we won't get to uh, put this out to the public, except via our uh, hugely popular podcast. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and the newsletter, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, and and uh, if you want to listen to another podcast, I talked to this uh, I talked about this exact uh, uh, topic on um, Richard Saunders' Skipping Zone podcast. Great! So anyway, if people want to hear you talk about the same thing twice. They should go to a rival podcast and listen to that. I'm I'm sure that it'll be <laughs> there'll be a very different take on it. You'll have to have a listen. Anyway, so that's that's our challenge. Uh, so those are the people we've challenged now, which I interestingly observed names all began with K. So we've challenged the KKK. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh no. uh, okay, Kirsten, Kang, and Kelvin. Yeah, all right. Yes. Well, that's great. Now we're anti-racist crusaders. I like it. No, crusaders Excellent. probably isn't the right word. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, Bronwyn, you mm. were going to talk about your investigations into Ray Comfort. Yeah, well, I mean, it was all part, it was part of a larger series about, you know, that ev- evangelical pipeline between New Zealand and the United States. And, and he Ray was flowing Com- in the wrong direction. <laughs> or in the right direction, just, you know, getting out of the country, so to speak. And Ray Comfort had his fingers in so many pies. Um, whatever big Christian movement was going on in the U.S., he was there. He was involved with Bill Gothard. In fact, Bill Gothard and the IBLP kind of what pushed comfort hang into. On, hang on, hang on. What was the IBLP again? <laughs> the Independent Baptist. Um, so that's Bill Gothard. Ah, right. Bill Gothard's. Co- um, Bill Gothard. In- no, actually, the Institute of Basic Life Life Principles. So they're sort of, right. of Independent Baptists. That's the group that the Duggars are part of. Um, ah, yep. He, you know. Very much women stayed home, umbrella of authority. And yeah, he kind of was the first person to not quite throw comfort into the stratosphere, but, you know, pretty high up there and put him in front of the eyeballs of a lot of very well-known evangelicals like Doug Phillips and his group. But, you know, he did have a start in New Zealand. Uh, Most famously, he was a frenemy of the Christchurch Wizard. And for about 12 years, Comfort spent his time at Speaker's Corner just talking about, you know, just proselytizing to Jesus <laughs> or proselytizing about Jesus. But God, sometimes there's aspects of his prehistory that poke through and are just like, I want to know more. Like, I want to know more about the surfing film that he that he allegedly filmed. Mm. I want to see the original copy of the All My Friends Are Dead all my friends are dying that um, apparently the cops were involved with because it looks like there were stills that are somehow still available, but he's lost both of those films. No one knows where they are. He's the king mm. of lost media in many ways. His popularity, I think it's not so much his own theology that comes through. I think his big popularity is about his po- apologetics. You know, how do you argue? How do you convert? And that's what he's interested in. He's converting non-believers and trying to pull off gotcha moments. Well, he's trying to convert non-believers. I, I don't know how successful he is. 
Well, if you watch his slanted YouTube video, it's very successful because he only <laughs> publishes the ones that looks like they work, right? Yeah. I wonder how, they, how, the, how long they stick. Mm. Uh, I, I had some interaction with, um, with Ray Comfort via, he used to run a forum, must have been at least 10 years ago now, where he essentially interacted with atheists. And he was actually quite active and you could really ask him questions and discuss things and actually get responses from him, uh, which was was quite amusing because many people sort of got him into these very weird positions and logical conclusions from what he was claiming. I mean, what I would say about Comfort's work, having read a fair amount of it, he likes to self-plagiarize himself in many ways. You know, the stuff that he wrote in the early 80s about this chick named Jane who had the demon possession, that comes up again in a autobiography, almost word for word. He's copied that into an autobiography that he wrote in the mid 2000s. Um, His stuff about evangelical frustration, he uses that one again and again and again. What's the gist of the evangelical frustration? Oh, the the basically, you know, preaching the people that Jesus loves them is not effective. What you need to do is scare the shit out of them and tell (laughs) them that, you know, yeah, Jesus is here. Isn't, you know, you're going to go to hell and maybe your belief in Jesus will sort of lessen the fall. So that's the. That's the gist of the way of the master, isn't it? Is basically you prove that people are sinners. You then explain to them that they'll be going to hell. And then you offer them the life raft of salvation through Jesus. And the, their way of the master idea is you you keep people on this track and you, you first get them to admit that they're sinners, that they've lied, that they've looked lustfully at a woman or a man, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you you kind of offer them the way out of it. And yeah, I mean, I, I think he's made a lot of money out of that, hasn't he, Bronwyn, selling this method that he's figured out? Yeah, like, you know, we're looking at millions of dollars. Mm. Gone through. Um, but what I was trying to say is that, you know, one of his big acts, I guess we can say, was the Coke can and banana. And apparently he's, he was doing that in Christchurch back in the 1980s. Now, if you follow Ray Comfort, you know that he is the banana man. He sat down on a show with Kirk Cameron and talked about the banana being the atheist nightmare. <laughs> Maybe we oh, can. Can we, uh, can, can we inject the audio for that I in the podcast? Great idea. Um, uh, if we had a talented editor, I'm sure that we could. I think we do have a talented editor, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> You're amazing if that's what you need. <laughs> All right. Let's insert that now. Behold, the atheist's nightmare. Now, if you study a well-made banana, you'll find on the far side, there are three ridges. On the close side, two ridges. If you get your hand ready to grip a banana, you'll find on the far side, there are three grooves. On the close side, two grooves. The banana and the hand are perfectly made one for the other. You'll find the maker of the banana, Almighty God, has made it with a non-slip surface. It has outward indicators of inward contents, green, too early, yellow just right, black too late. Now if you go to the top of the banana, you'll find as with the soda can makers, they placed a tab at the top, so God has placed a tab at the top. When you pull the tab, the contents don't squirt in your face. Okay. Oh. <laughs> oh no, no don't. <laughs> but you know, he, but Comfort will argue that this clip is always taken out of context because prior to that is a little bit about the Coke can. And somehow he thinks that having this little bit about the Coke can is what makes it obvious that it's a parody. (laughs) But when you also read the documentaries, he talks, he goes into this really weird Tristam Shandy type story where he talks about all these atheists he met who would, you know, heckle him like 
good old nasty Eve, who is my personal hero now, um, who would apparently <laughs> heckle um, comfort every day in Christchurch. Uh, yeah, he would con- he kind of note all these atheists who he would perform this act in front of, and no one seems to have told him that. Oh, the banana thing, you know, <laughs> you're wrong about banana evolution. So there seems to be a bit of a, a name and blame in his documentary and in his books. Yeah, oh, it's, it's that idea that it's all just a parody. I mean, what he's trying to do is parody the idea of evolution. He, the, the banana thing isn't a parody. He really was being honest from what I can tell about what he thought the banana was like, that he didn't realize that pre-human intervention bananas were not yellow to show you they were ripe. They were not perfectly fitting to the hand and so on and so forth. And they weren't sweet and yummy. They were a very different fruit before humans got into it. And we we know that he uses this argument because he loves Paley. He loves part of his way of the master is talking about every building has a builder, every um, piece of art has an artist. And that that's one of his things is like everything that you see has something behind it. And therefore, when we look at nature, nature must have something behind it. And that thing is God. This is one of his standard arguments. Mm-hmm. And it's a very basic one that actually really appeals across all these different denominations of fundamentalist and evangelical Christianity. And it makes him very flexible to go to all these different spaces and teach them about apologetics and how do you counter an argument? Because in many ways, it's kind of low hanging fruit for a lot of these evangelicals. It's going to be, you're going to go for the, maybe the angry edgelord atheists or the angry edgelord teenager, you know, someone who doesn't have that experience or doesn't have the life experience to be able to, you know, cut through the bullshit. Mm. I wonder if this has changed. I wonder if now that even like edgy teen atheists have watched a few YouTube videos and know that William Paley's argument of a designer falls down as soon as you think of, well, who designed God then? You know, think- why why decide that God is the stopping point and not just evolution? All of the media that he produces, um, if you if you wander down Queen Street and, and get accosted by a Christian evangelical trying to sell you God, they will be handing out these little tracks that are cartoony and they come from Living Waters. They are his um, Need God website tracks. And they're all presenting very, very simplistic views of the world and parodying evolution. I know he was sort of fairly big in criticizing evolution probably 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we had that he whole, had, um... But he had all these really simplistic arguments about, well, um, how, how did the males evolve at the same time as the females so that they could actually reproduce? And and, and so people were trying to explain to him, no, that is not how evolution works. And he's had ex- explained to him countless times, but he still trots out the same arguments because they work with people. People take up these simplistic, uh, easy to understand arguments that they don't have to think too deeply about. And that then converts them to believing in God. Well, also at the same time, I mean, this is when he was starting to try to have a bit of a rumble with Richard Dawkins. And here's mm. another figure in sort of, you know, atheist speak and atheist thought that has uh, has tumbled to quite a bit, as we may, may want to argue in a different podcast. You know, his star has started falling as well in many years. But, you know, he oh, this is around, yeah, 20, um, 2009, 2010. Dawkins had done this tour, you know, basically a fly in, fly out tour. I saw him in Christchurch. Mm, um, Ray right. Comfort didn't show up, but, you know, there was Ray Comfort. There was somebody distributing the copies of uh, Darwin's um, Origin of Species. The Ray Comfort edition. Yeah. Yes. With the missing chapters. 
<laughs> That's because he needed to fit his foreword in. He couldn't have enough space to put in all the chapters of the book as well. But also, and when he, you think about all the other books that he publishes, that's a pretty sizable um, book. That you know, that edition is pretty big. Whereas he's pretty much known for more of a chap, the, you know, the chap books or the little fake money tracks. You know, the ones that look like the fit. You know, it looks like a really ridiculous denomination, but it's no way a legal tender. But nonetheless, you know, if you're really poor, if you don't have that um, knowledge or education, it, some people have taken it to banks. You know, they think it's real. They think their life has changed. <laughs> really cool. Oh, jeez. Oh, wow. Well, he did. You know, this happened in the U.S. Um, apparently, it came to the attention of the Secret Service because when someone, someone brought in one of these fake bills to a bank to try to cash it. Because and this is when it was like an entire bill, where some of the fake ones, it kind of looks like a folded bill, but when you open it, you can see it's only maybe only a little portion of it is a bill, and the rest of it's a track. There's so many different versions of these things, but the comfort one, that was the one that actually caught the attention of the Secret Service, and it actually went to uh, federal court to see is this money laundering? Is this um, is is Ray Comfort printing yeah, money? Right. And they found out that no, no, it's quite obviously a fake. Well, I hope they make him made him feel very uncomfortable about that. Then. <laughs> oh no! At least do a decent pun if you're going to pun on our podcast. Mm. But uh, I would, but comfort. I mean, he's still doing. He's he's found an audience of some sort of on YouTube. I mean, obviously he's getting millions of views on his video. However, if you know something about YouTube, you do have to ask a question of how many of those views are legitimate views versus say bot views. But I think that's besides the point. In many ways, discussion about evangelicalism and fundamental Christian beliefs have taken a bit of a turn, particularly in terms of Roe versus Wade, um, the Trump presidency. Um, the stakes are a lot higher than what comfort is still trying to argue about evolution. You know, it's important. We do have schools that are trying to uh, still get rid of those, get rid of science textbooks and change science textbooks. But when you have children being removed from family because they are transgendered and their parents' families are trying to get them treatment, it's a bit of a different scenario. I remember that 60 Minutes in New Zealand actually did a, a segment on Ray Comfort probably, I know, 15 years ago, something like that. Yeah, I, I, and, you can watch it on YouTube. I think, and I, think okay. had, I think he actually hosts that. He has a copy of it and he hosts it. Posted on YouTube right. and on his website. Yeah. So they were, I think, in, from memory, they were interviewing him and sort of being absolutely amazed that how how well he was doing was selling books about God and sending them out and making huge amounts of money out of that. Mm. He's clearly found his niche. Well, I mean, it's a, he has a big audience over there. I mean, it's, I think it's the same reason why Nancy Campbell went over so many years ago, and actually way before, way before, than certainly the same time. Actually, he went over in the '90s, and I think her and her family went over in the '90s as mm. well. I guess he's a little bit odd in that he's not living in the Bible Belt; he's living in uh, California, mm. um, which is not really the place you'd expect to be a. Uh... Yeah, except if if your shtick is challenging atheists, I, I think California is probably <laughs> well. the place you need to be there, or New York. Yeah. I mean, he right. got, he, he tells, there's a couple of different stories out there as to how he got to LA. And in his autobiography, he will say that, you know, he kind of knew this pastor. He met him in Hawaii, kind of convicted him towards his, you know, towards Comfort's own beliefs. And then when Comfort lost his job associated with a church in New Zealand, um, this American pastor said, hey, look, come to my church in 
the U.S. Come work for us. And then in the autobiography, all mention of this church completely disappear. All pretty much all mention of this particular pastor disappears. And mm-hmm. it's all about his street preaching. And yeah, there seems to be this sort of, uh, you know, things have just happened to me, which is very much, you know, a, a style of comfort storytelling in that, oh, he kept on meeting these Americans when before he went over while he was still thinking about whether he should go over to the U.S. And they said, oh, you should go to MacArthur Park. You know, you should go to L.A. And then he ended up hearing some songs like the MacArthur Park song. So for him, as someone who's very much oriented towards prophecies, if that's how we want to (laughs) sort of believe his presentation of himself, you know, it was all sorts of signs that he had. So that's why he's in L.A. Prophecy via pop music. Yeah. yeah, that part of the the story, everything that you wrote, Bronwyn, the the things that the way the things felt just too perfect. They what? felt like they they just everything lined up and everything was simple and and you know God was looking after him. It it all feels to me like he's being very economical with the truth that he's rearranged his life story to make it sound a lot different to what actually will have happened to him. Yeah, but. At the same time, he kind of told on himself. I believe it was the Banana Man film where he, you know, briefly we have a little screenshot of a article from I'm not sure if it's the People magazine, but it's from some sort of People magazine where it talks about him flying over to the U.S. And there's a little paragraph there where it says, you know, Comfort was apparently going to give this church money to help him establish a ministry. So Mm -hmm. it sounds like there might have been some sort of immigration or business deal. So Comfort would get sort of sponsorship to come over to the U.S., but nonetheless, Comfort was sort of an independent person of that. Um, yeah, because it's, it's not like you can just show up in the U.S. and decide to become a citizen there. Is there. You need to have the, the appropriate immigration mm-hmm. status to allow you to do that. It's kind of interesting that the set of churches that he got involved with, which is part of the Calvary Church uh, Fellowship, were very, very famous in the 60s and 70s for the Jesus movement or the Jesus people, Jesus freak movement. So he was uh, he got caught up into that pretty early on as he initially was uh, preaching to hippies in New Brighton at his uh, surf shop come leather jacket. So making leather jackets, wearing short shorts. Fringe cowboy leather jackets. He still wears the short shorts. It's very. Well, he. I don't think. I don't see him wearing the short shorts. He's all in the suits, but he does like to cycle around with his puppy, which is really kind of cute. It's kind of. That's kind of the disarming part. He does have this image of, you know, being just a humble, oh shucks, New Zealander on his bike in, you know, despite the temptations of uh, American evangelicalism. You know, he's not a mega. You know, he's a mega pastor without a mega church in many ways. Is it just yeah. me or, or has he actually embraced the kind of 1970s gay look? I mean, he to me, like if I didn't know better and I just saw Ray Comfort and saw him like five minutes talking, I'd think this man is gay, which obviously is, is not an insult at all. It just he he doesn't I don't know. He, he doesn't seem to be. I don't, I don't know, know what I'm saying. Here, but... on his sexuality. <laughs> no, but but I just I, I feel like the aesthetic he's gone for. And I'm guessing like he'll be totally anti-gay. You know, he's an evangelical. Right. So he is not going to be up with the homosexual lifestyle as being something acceptable. Well, but he, the... he is he is on record as saying you can choose your sexuality. Really? You choose okay. to be gay. <laughs> right. So you do but, choose. Therefore, you can choose not to be gay, presumably, as the flip side of that. Exactly. And exactly. sometimes, you know, people do get stuck in style ruts. You know, they just dress the way that they, you know, felt the best about themselves when they were. Oh, stop talking about Mark like that. 
<laughs> but I mean, you know, oh God, I just saw this really great meme and people were like, you know, let's make men, let's turn men, let's bring real men back. And it's a picture of the musician Stan Smith. And then someone's kind of gone off and mocked this meme by looking like, well, here's what men's look, men look like in the 1980s, in the 1970s. And you know what? They're dressing like Ray Comfort did back then. So <laughs> well, he, would, he would probably fit right at, well in with the village people, I would think. That I mean that mustache. I am I am envious of his tash. <laughs> my 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 favorite picture was that one that he included of him on top of the trash can, and I'm like, given that this was sort, I think this book was published sort of in the mid 2000s, maybe early 2010s, before we started calling people trash cans and trash fires. Uh, oh, I love that picture so much. <laughs> That's prophecy for you. <laughs> yeah, that is prophecy. All right, I think we've talked enough about Ray Comfort, mm. and <laughs> we've talked for a long time. So what's happening in the um, in the meetup space? Well, we do have skeptics in the pub tonight in Wellington, but probably by the time this episode comes up, it'll be a little bit too late. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not some- quick, quick stop, stop listening, get in your car, drive <laughs> to the Intercontinental right now, and we will be there. If it's still Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if it's Friday. Good point. Okay, very good. Uh, and uh, we had skeptics in the pub uh, just this week gone by in Auckland. So that went- hang on, hang on. Are we, are we advertising events that have already happened now? This seems the no, wrong well, way I'm, round. I'm, Isn't I'm, this supposed to be up? When's your next skeptics in the pub, Auckland? Well, the next skeptics in the pub in Auckland would in will be on the second of May, but I will not be there because I'm going to be in Australia. Oh, so who's running it? Who can people expect to be greeted by uh, when they yes, turn up? It'll be be Robin. Robin, Robin Kappa. Yep. Awesome. He's, Good he's skeptic, nice, friendly guy. It'll be, if you can get to the Auckland Skeptics in the pub, I'm sure it'll be a fun evening. Mm-hmm. And on behalf of the Dunedin Skeptics in the pub, Thursday, April the 13th at 6 p.m., they'll be meeting at Umbrellos Kitchen and Bar again. So um, go down and say hi to Josh and the crew. Awesome. And on behalf of me, um, <laughs> skeptical activism next Thursday at the Fork and Brewer from six o'clock-ish. And I don't know what we're going to do. Um, we we finish with a therapeutic products bill. We finish with a hundred thousand dollar challenge. We, I don't know what our project is going to be for next week. But turn up, submit a complaint, get a free pint. That's good. You have been listening to the Inner Podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can contact us via email at news at skeptics.nz. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Au revoir. Bye. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can contact us via email at news at skeptics.nz. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Au revoir. Bye. Bye.